the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Firing Line with Philip Naiman. The Firing Line radio show is brought to you by Bullseye Sports in Riverside, CCW Safe, Cutting Edge Bullets, Vortex Optics, Vortex, the force of optics, and by Philip Naiman and Cornerstone Christian Wealth Management. And now your host, Philip Naiman. Good. Bad. I'm the guy with the gun. Happy Saturday, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Firing Line Radio Show. I'm your guest host, Stan Campbell from CCW Safe. Standing in for Phil Naiman, he decided to take a quick break. So um, as I do every once in a while, he is my friend and I love his audience. So I come in and I step in and, and take over for a little bit. So today is my day. And because it is my day, I'm all about teaching you guys different things and giving you uh, the knowledge to keep you out of prison uh, and ruining your life forever. So I bring in my good friends. This week, I'm going to bring in National Trial Counsel, Don West. Good friend of mine. Welcome, Don. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Stan. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I look forward to talking with you today. Well, you know, I, I always, you know, every once in a while, you know, when I'm in California and I do the, the, the in-person show with Phil, we, we call upon you. But this time uh, we, we're going to be, I'm, you're in Dallas, I'm in Oklahoma City, and, and we're going to handle it from a remote location. And um, I wanted to kind of get right into some of the things and concerns that we get all the time that also, um, you know, a, a lot of California, you know, members as well, they have issues uh, with what they see out there in the press right now with, you know, people you know, getting locked in or surrounded by folks in these riot situations and not knowing what to do. And we get a question a lot of times, you know, when should I feel comfortable showing them displaying my weapon? So I wanted to get into a discussion about brandishing. Can you first talk to us about what that is and kind of give us a breakdown of how that works in, in the, in the, from the legal perspective? Uh, sure. Brandishing is a word most people are familiar with. It's one of those sort of generic terms that has a common meaning to most, but actually has very specific meanings in the context of criminal law. And what makes it a little bit difficult sometimes to sort out is the, that meaning can change from state to state, jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But generally, brandishing means displaying uh, a weapon, uh, a deadly weapon, firearms specifically, in most instances, in a rude, threatening, or angry manner. So it doesn't require necessarily that you point the gun specifically at someone. It doesn't require that you intend uh, to shoot them, of course. It's mm-hmm. the idea of sort of often it's uh, recklessly waving a gun around or, um, you know, being angry, threatening. Now, of course, the other side of that is most statutes will say, and not in lawful self-defense. 
That's right. That that contemplates, of course, that it's a crime unless you have the legal right to display a firearm in that manner. Yeah. And and what I tell everybody, you know, no matter where you are, and, and we've had a couple, I think maybe three brandishing charges in California that we've had to defend with our members. And um, some of those um, DAs are very aggressive. I mean, they really want to go for felony charges on on these folks for self-defense incidents or what they perceive as a self-defense incident. And, you know, and in saying that, you know, like people really want to know, you know, and of course, I like to say, okay, if it's a life threatening incident, I mean, that's a no brainer. Somebody pulls out a gun on you, knife. That's that's a no brainer. Um, Someone spits on your shoe you know, pounds on your, your car hood. Those are times that you should absolutely not do it. But the issues that we kind of run into, Don, is, is when they don't know if they should pull it out to keep a deadly force incident from occurring or when they're scared, you know, like the parking lot incident. Can you kind of talk about, you know, uh, an instance in reference to where, where that happens and kind of what to do? Yeah, let me get to that in just a minute, though, but touch upon, in fact, uh, some of the scenarios that we've had in California Mm -hmm. where a gun was brandished that turned out to be uh, very close to being a crime. Uh, Sometimes we're able to work that out and uh, with good lawyering and good resources up front, we can paint a better picture for the prosecutor than what the police may have or what the person claiming to be a victim of this brandishing or assault type case does. But I tell you, the road rage stuff is where it gets really out of control quickly. A couple of guys are jostling back and forth. Somebody thinks somebody cut somebody off and it escalates and then finally gets to the point where somebody displays a gun. Um, Often that's a use of force that's not justified under the circumstances. It's almost uh, done in an angry or threatening way to, to win the argument, not because there's any legal justification in showing a gun at that point. So we we always caution people to use good judgment. And if you see somebody that's being the kind of jerk that we've all come across on the roadway, just stay away. You know, there's absolutely nothing good that will come out from engaging these folks because you have to assume that they will be reasonable and responsible in their response, just as you hope that you will be. But tempers flare. It gets volatile. And uh, that's a recipe a lot of times for uh, somebody getting shot or uh, somebody going to jail. So to the point that you were talking about, I think what you're referring to, Stan, is that case out of Clearwater, Florida, a couple of years ago, the handicapped parking place spot uh, where a fellow named Michael Draco took upon himself to sort of police the area of a convenience store. Mm -hmm and confronted a young woman who was sitting in that spot with her child while her boyfriend went into the store to, to buy some stuff. Uh, Marquise McLaughlin is the fella's name that ultimately got shot. And uh, Michael Drake, of course, the person that wound up shooting him. So most people I think are familiar with that case in general, but very quickly, uh, Draco was complaining and would complain uh, to anybody that would listen, including the guy that ran the store, about people parking in the handicapped spot without being authorized to do so. So when he came to the store and saw Brittany Jacobs there, he got out of his vehicle and approached her and confronted her. She was in the car. Uh, 
at one point, she even got out of the car and was standing face to face with him. Someone in the parking lot came into the store and told uh, Marquise McLaughlin that there was something going on in the parking lot. He rushed out of the store, ran down the uh, sidewalk, as you can see in the surveillance video, and pretty violently uh, shoved Draca to the ground. Uh, Draca lost his balance. He fell backwards, completely flat on the ground. And that's where the that, that's where it transitioned from this argument to a deadly force situation. Uh, McLaughlin stood there. You can you can say that he started to approach, taking a couple of steps towards Draca. Draca claimed that as he was on the ground, he thought that McLaughlin was coming at him. He believed his life was in danger. He drew the gun, aimed it fired it one time and McLaughlin died. That's right. That that case was pretty controversial because uh, Florida's stand your ground stuff was involved and the sheriff made some statements. The prosecutor wound up prosecuting Drake. Uh, He went to trial and and lost. He's he's in prison doing something like 20 years at this point. Yeah. And, you know, the reason why that one stands out so much, it, it was a national case, you know, a Florida case that, that went national. And, you know, the fact that, you know, and, and we talk about this all the time about those with guns, not introducing yourself into conflict just because you have a gun. And that happens often, you know, with our members and others who just conceal carry. Um you have to really think about some of the things that you do and make decisions in intervening with something, you know, make, make that decision as if, what would I do if I didn't have a gun? Would I do these things? Would I make these moves? Would I you know, move forward with this action? And, and, and that helps out with deciding whether or not you should do it when you have one. Um, uh, yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And I think while it was, Pretty close call in many respects. I think what uh, where, where Drake lost his credibility in his processing and his thinking and his reaction there at the time of the incident was he had a prior incident or two, and mm-hmm. at least one of them got into evidence, and that sort of that view, you know, the, made him look like he was trigger happy, made him look like he was uh, ready, willing, and able to use a gun, and may actually have one, hoping that somebody would challenge him. So you're exactly right. You know, you just don't engage yourself in these scenarios when you can walk away, especially if you're a gun. We're going to pick back up on the other side of this uh, commercial break and and talk a little bit more about, you know, the uh, the drinking case, some of the challenges, the 21 foot rule that, you know, he was kind of operating under. Uh, So you got to stay tuned. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi folks, Philip Naiman from Firing Line Radio Show. If you're a concealed handgun carrier or have a firearm to defend your home and are forced to use your weapon for self-defense or the protection of a loved one, you'll be glad to have CCW Safe on your side. CCW Safe provides and pays 100% upfront defense funds for high-quality attorneys, expert witnesses, and the investigators you need following a critical incident with no reimbursement. And they do it all for one flat yearly fee starting at $179 a year. 
CCW Safe has permit and non-permit plans to protect California residents in this state and while traveling across the country. So check out their new ultimate plan with no caps on criminal and civil defense, $1 million for bond coverage, a dedicated million dollars for civil liability, and many other benefits. You defend your life. CCW Safe will defend your freedom and financial future. In California, CCW Safe has got you covered. So join now at ccwsafe.com. AM 590, the answer. This portion of the firing line is brought to you by Bullseye Sports in Riverside. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. See this? This is my boomstick. Hey, folks, welcome back to Firing Line Radio Show. And you know that every week on the Firing Line Radio Show, our conversation is going to revolve around firearms, hunting, gun rights, all the great stuff afforded to all Americans under the Second Amendment of the Constitution. Now, our faithful companion in the battle to uphold these rights has been Firing Line Radio Show's longtime sponsor, Vince Torres of Bullseye Sports, Guns, and Ammo in Riverside. Now, if you're not armed for protection or recreation, well, shame on you. Head on down to Bullseye Sport in Riverside where you need to go for small arms, rifles, shotguns, ammo, accessories, and much more. Now, after you purchase that firearm, Vince and I highly recommend you attend a certified firearm safety and training course, one that's going to teach you the basic knowledge, skills, and attitudes essential to the safe and efficient use of your firearm. For more information on certified firearm courses, call Bullseye Sport in Riverside, 951-823-0211. That should be number two on your speed dial by now, folks. Visit their website, bullseyesport.com, for a schedule of classes. Because of Bullseye Sports Guns and Ammo, they believe in safety first. Welcome back to the Firing Line Radio Show. I am your guest host, Stan Campbell of CCW Safe. And along with me, I'm standing in for Phil, of course. You guys know this Saturday. And um, along with me today is my my good friend and the National Trial Counsel for CCW Safe. And his name is Attorney Don West. Welcome back, Don West. Thanks, Stan. Appreciate it. Yeah, before we uh, went to the break, we were kind of talking about you know, the handicapped parking cases, everyone talks about it nationally in, in Florida and some of the challenges that 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 particular, you know, shooter or victim um, faced. Uh, can you kind of go back into like some of the things and, and maybe some some things that they attempted to utilize in his defense? Yes, of, uh, of course, this is one of those fairly rare, although becoming more common cases that is largely on video. So the jury's focus, the prosecutor's focus, the defense focus was on the video from the store surveillance camera that captured this sequence of events, of course, only from one angle. And I I thought that in some ways, reliance on just that view may have been misplaced because we really couldn't see exactly what Michael Draca was seeing. There was no camera behind him that helped sort out whether he truly believed that Marquise McLaughlin was continuing to come after him after he knocked him to the ground. Of course, Draca was very vulnerable on the ground. He couldn't fight McLaughlin, who was much bigger, more athletic, younger. Uh, He was in a vulnerable position in a sort of physical contest. So Draca, Draca obviously believed that he needed to draw his weapon in order to defend himself. Now, uh, I think what the jury focused on and certainly the prosecutor harped on it was there was that moment when Draca pulled the gun, had it out and aimed, but hadn't 
that didn't pull the trigger for a second or two. Mm-hmm. So the claim was that he had an opportunity to realize at that point that McLaughlin was not advancing. And if you look very carefully at the video and try to match all this stuff up, it can be argued that McLaughlin actually had taken a step or two back at the time the shot was fired. So I think that became the critical decision for the jury was whether at the time the shot was fired, not at the moment the gun was drawn, was Draca facing an imminent threat of great bodily harm or death, even assuming that McLaughlin was able to kill him uh, Mm -hmm. physically by kicking him or, or what have you. And I think the jury hung up on it. You know, the prosecutor even made a comment during mm-hmm. the case that maybe uh, Draco was justified in pulling the gun, aiming the gun, but not in firing it. So he was saying, essentially, this was a dynamic, dangerous situation yes. and that Draco it was not unreasonable under those circumstances for him to go to the gun where it became unreasonable was for him to fire it at that moment. Exactly. Hey, Don, before you continue, because a lot of people, they really get, you know, confused around that point there, you know, because actually, you know, um, when it comes down to imminence and, and like truly articulating a threat upon yourself, there's there, sometimes it seems like there, there's like a window in which you can use deadly force. And then sometimes that window closes. So anything that you do, you know, prior to that and then afterwards is really concerning and, and you should be aware of. Correct. Yeah. I've heard some legal commentators call that kind of the Goldilocks rule. You know, <laughs> it can't be too soon or too late. It has to be just right. Yeah. And because these situations change in a moment, In fact, there's lots of cases out there where because they change so dramatically and so quickly, and yet your reaction time isn't instant. There are times where it's just not clear what whether the threat had dissipated or whether you were still perceiving the threat. I think uh, that's how some people get shot in the back, even though they were, in fact, posing posing a threat. Uh, You know, McLaughlin was pretty close to Draco. I would have guessed by sort of 20 feet, 15 feet, maybe mm-hmm. uh, maybe 10 or 15 feet. So there wasn't a lot of reaction time that Draco had if McLaughlin had indeed charged him with the idea of physically uh, beating him up, kicking him, trying to kill him. On the other hand, McLaughlin didn't have a weapon. So right. it was clear that he was no danger as long as he didn't, in fact, come right up to him. Yes. And, and, and that's one of the challenges, too, when you when you when you face people that don't have weapons, because if you end up using deadly force, then the challenge is, is upon you to articulate, you know, the threat being imminent and the threat being real. Correct. Yes. And uh, not just imminent. Well, real in the se- Yes. Imminent for sure. It always has to be imminent, meaning it's going to happen right now. Real mm-hmm. meaning, not only it is a threat, but a threat that can, in fact, cause great bodily harm or death. Mm-hmm. So that's where the disparity uh, of force kind of comes in. The idea that how can you shoot an unarmed person? Well, we know from many high profile cases that, in fact, there are those scenarios where juries recognize that, yes, the unarmed person 
poses such a significant threat that deadly force is warranted. Um, but you've got to be able to show that. I think there has to be an articulable deadly force threat against you before you would, of course, use a deadly force response. Correct. And then and, and, and that, that comment there kind of goes along with the initial question that I posed by, you know, folks out here now who have, you know, protesters, you know, blocking their their route or, or surrounding their car. You know, if someone's just yelling at you, that's not the time to pull your weapon. Um, um, now, if someone's trying to use some type of ob- object to break your windows or pull you out of the car, then things change a little bit. But, you know, pounding on your vehicle, doing things that are disruptive to your travel um, does not bring you to that level of using that type of force, correct? Yeah, that's a really, really difficult situation, of course, because it's so dynamic. But you really have to do your very best to understand what is actually going on. Does this person or these people intend you some harm or are they just annoying you and uh, impeding your way? So you're right. You have to calculate that and it can change in an instant. Obviously, if somebody starts coming at the vehicle with a uh, a Molotov cocktail or mm-hmm. some other kind of weapon that can you know hurt or kill you while you're in your car, then that's a very different situation than somebody that's just standing in front of the car, waving a sign, or even maybe with an open palm, you know, smacking the hood of the car. Correct. Uh, and we've seen lots and lots of that on TV. We've seen examples of good judgment where people were pretty good at assessing the real threat that was being posed, if any, and then other mm-hmm. people that uh, may have overreacted. That's correct. And, um, you know, and that kind of goes along because we have a couple of, of uh, members now that have challenged people over, you know, the fact that they're not wearing a mask, you know I mean? Like all these things are just new to us because this is all 2020 COVID issues. We never had to think about, you know, concealed carriers having to address this in the, in the past. And now all of a sudden people want to be the mask police. And, you know, and, and that that also launches you into a definite conflict with someone. And, and if somebody's actually violating a true law, then, I, you know, I, I always say, let the police do their jobs and call the police. Even if you have a conflict with someone surrounding your vehicle, you need to call and get you know, legal authorities there to help you out of that situation if, you, if you're not able to avoid it and drive away yourself. So um, I, I agree with you completely. Uh, you know, your first. Well, go ahead, because I think you made your point very well. Yeah. So and, and I appreciate that, Don. Um, so what we're going to do next is um, we're going to go into our, our next uh, station break. And then we're going to when we come back, I, I want to talk about Don. I want to talk about you know, what really concerns people after a shooting incident. And that is, what do I say to the police? Or do I even talk to the police? And both of you have, both of us have opinions on that. So we're going to discuss that um, on the way back in. All right, guys, uh, stick with us. And uh, we're going to be learning a lot more about what to do when you are involved in a self-defense shooting. And, and more so than anything, what do I say to the police? This is Stan Campbell from CCW Safe on Fireline Radio Show, and we'll be back to you right after these messages. Have questions about handgun safety, local sports shooting events, or your Second Amendment rights? 
Just ask Vince at Bullseye Sport in Riverside. Get practical advice. No sales pitch. Vince is a straight shooter when it comes to sharing his advice and years of gun experience. Whether you're a seasoned gun owner or a newcomer, at Bullseye Sport, they welcome everyone, especially ladies considering a firearm for the first time. When they go to our store, we want to give them something that they're going to feel comfortable with. And if you're looking to purchase a gun, ammo, or accessories... If we don't have it, we will get it for you. For all the answers to your rifle and handgun questions, just ask Vince at Bullseye Sport. 951-823-0211. Bullseye Sport in Riverside. Proud sponsor of the Firing Line Gun Show, Saturdays at 1 p.m. on AM 590. Follow Bullseye Sport on Facebook for your inventory updates or call 951-823-0211. 951-823-0211. AM 590. The answer. This portion of the Firing Line is brought to you by CCW Safe by Philip Naiman and Cornerstone Christian Wealth Management. Spartans! Lay down your weapons! Persians! Come and get them! Welcome back to Fire and Line Radio Show. I'm your guest host, Stan Campbell of CCW Safe, and I have my friend with me today, the National Trial Council of CCW Safe. And his name is Attorney Don West. Hey, Stan. Um, yes, sir. Good to talk with you again. Hey, buddy. Hey, uh, we, we were talking about, um, you know, wanting to really explain to people, you know, our opinions on, you know, when to talk to the police and should we talk to police? So, um, and, and, and this is after a, a, sh- a shooting incident, of course, um, a self-defense incident. And there, there's a body with a hole in it and somebody's not moving. There's a deceased person there. There's a homicide and the police come, the responding officers are there and they want to talk to you. What does somebody say, Don? Well, you've been on that other end, no doubt, where you were the person that responded or you uh, were on a team that responded. So you know what law enforcement's perspective is when they roll up on a deadly force situation and have to assess who, if any, uh, one is still a threat, what kind Mm -hmm. of support services are needed. You've got to secure the scene. You've got to call the crime scene, get the forensic stuff going and all of that. So there's a lot on your plate as a responding officer, more than just showing up and taking a few notes, Uh, because no matter how much information you may have from a 911 call, you're you're going into a situation that is both dangerous and unknown for the most part. You know what? Let me jump in real quick because I'm glad you said that, um, you know, because for those who don't know, I, I spent 20 years on the police department. I left there as supervisor over a crime scene, a crime street, street crime unit, excuse me, and also 10 years with SWAT. And I did a lot of training of police officers and I worked a lot of crime scenes, you know, over a thousand or so crime scenes. Well, you know, police, the first responders, and we're talking about the 911 officers, those in uniforms, those are the ones that you're going to see first. But your first true contact with police or someone associated with police is 911. And uh, so there's three kind of distinctive times that you'll deal with a police official during this process. And that's where the 911 dispatcher, the emergency operator, uh, the responding officer, and then also the investigator. So there's three different distinctive times that you're going to deal with, you know, the police force. And, you know, we always say, and Don and I do agree that if you're involved in a self-defense shooting, you know, even we tell our members, call 911. And one of the things that you're doing there is that you're going to 
Let them know that the incident occurred, right? Let them know that you're a victim, but also, you know, give them your description because that's some of the things that the police are looking for to see who is the good guy and who's the bad guy. And your location, of course, and try to get police and medical to that location. You know, and, and Don, we, we, we discussed this before. People don't understand how important it is to call for medical, although a person just tried to end your life. Uh, tell us why that might be important in the future. Well, your perspective from law enforcement, uh, my perspective is as a criminal defense trial lawyer pushing 40 years now. Mm-hmm. And I've tried lots of lots of self-defense cases. And I know from paying attention to what happens after the fact and, frankly, from reading the newspaper and seeing about other cases other lawyers have around the country, just how important it is from a trial standpoint to be someone who shows enough concern for the person they just shot who was probably trying to kill them um, that it reflects on their reflects on, frankly, it's an important issue for the prosecutor either to help justify not charging you or to exploit if they decide that you committed a crime. Uh, That was a bit rambling, but basically is if you show concern for the person that you shot, then you realize the scenario, the threat is over. And now it's time to see if you can save a human life, even one that may have attempted to end yours. That plays very well with the prosecutor. Ultimately, it plays well with the jury. And what I've seen more than that is the other side when you don't do that. I've seen prosecutors make arguments that the callous indifference to the person's life reflected on their mindset at the time of the shooting. So they'll try to flip that into showing that you weren't in fear, not reasonable fear, or that what you did was unreasonable. So uh, right. not only is it good human behavior, frankly, but it's also really smart in terms of helping to establish that your conduct, uh, that you acted in self-defense. Absolutely. And then, you know, the, the prosecutors and DAs, they're just doing their jobs. Right. And, um, you know, it's their job at, you know, sometimes to try to align your actions, be they, you know, you know, prior to the shooting incident where like they, they start attacking your, your social media posts and things that you might've said, you know, um, you know, emails, um, you know, rants, you know, different things that they can use against you to show that you were the aggressor and you were looking for this, this that's fight. A, that, that's exactly right. And, and that, that was in the Michael Drake case we talked about in the last segment, Drake had a prior right. incident where he confronted somebody under similar circumstances. And that, yeah. that blew up his whole trial in my opinion. Exactly. So, um, and, and I'm just, I'm not just saying this guys just to be saying it, you know, be mindful of your post and, you know, cause right now everybody's ranting, you know, because it's such a hot topic with police brutality and, you know, the politics, you know, this being a, a, a special year for voting, um, you know, you have to be mindful of what you allow into public your written words, because it can be used against you in the future. Uh, but also and stating that we're, now we're discussing things that happen after the fact. So, you know, Don and I are also against any, you know, um, signs of elation, like slapping people high fives. Because sometimes officers are, get you involved in that as well because they're, they're excited. They, they see you as a victim. But, you know, the things that you do, if you're not acting like a victim, um, it could be problematic after the incident. Correct, Don? Yes. And we've got examples of that in the 
in the public press. You know, take a look at how people viewed that recent shooting in the Atlanta area when it came out or it was claimed that one of the officers kicked the guy that had just been shot. Mm-hmm. How does that change the entire narrative of whether they had the right to shoot him to start with, uh, notwithstanding the fact that he was clearly a threat? Was he a life uh, ending threat, I, that's for the courts to sort out. But to do something that's so disrespectful and dehumanizing afterwards will be exploited to great end by the prosecutor and to some degree already has in making such a quick decision to charge somebody. Um, just like social media that you talked about of, of bragging about being a bad guy or maybe tricking out your gun to to putting bumper stickers on your car, things to draw attention to you that the prosecutor can point out and exploit to show a mindset that can then undermine your self-defense claim, a legitimate self-defense claim later on. So yeah, absolutely. That's critically important stuff. Awesome. And and, and guys, remember, we're, we're not saying not to be safe before the officers get there. Make sure that you put yourself in a position where, you know, it's safe for you to put your gun away. Um, you know, get behind some type of cover, uh, make sure that you call 911 properly. And and speaking of that, you know, before I, I walk away from calling 911, even if there's an incident in which a person runs away because you, you pointed your weapon at them, you still need to call 911 because we've had so many calls in which first one calls 911 is the victim. And sometimes that's the suspect. So if he calls on you and we, we, we've had members having to face that where uh, now you have to answer about your, you know, behavior because they, th- he and his friend are now saying that just some crazy guy came outside and pointed a gun at us for no reason and made themselves the victims. So, yeah, so be mindful of that. Um, so moving right along, Don, so we, we already talked about everything's safe. The officer has come in, uh, has just arrived. What, what are the type of things that you would suggest from a legal standpoint that you would give the officer, the responding officer initially? Well, first thing is to assert, well, you need to do some things anyway. You need to identify yourself. You need to, um, I think, make it clear that you're not a threat, uh, that you don't want to be combative. You don't want to be hostile, even if the police officer is being rude or you think isn't listening to you or believing you, you still have to remain calm and as focused as you can on explaining enough that the prosecutor, that the law enforcement officer knows that you were the victim of an attack and that you had to defend yourself. Uh, if you have the opportunity and there's a reason to point out evidence or potential witnesses, you want to do that. But there's very little more, I, I would suggest, that you volunteer there at the scene enough to get the responding officers oriented to know you were the victim of attack, you had to defend yourself, and then not provide a detailed or recorded statement uh, initially. So the next thing might be, how do you transition to that? And I think that's probably something worth talking about in, in some detail. Okay. So we'll, we'll actually get back into that in a minute um, in, in the last uh, quarter of this. Um, but you guys uh, stay tuned. Uh, we're going to continue to talk about this. You know, should we talk to the police? What should we say? I'm Stan Campbell, and this is Don West from the Firing Line Radio Show. Hi, folks. Philip Naiman from Firing Line Radio Show. 
If you're a concealed handgun carrier or have a firearm to defend your home and are forced to use your weapon for self-defense or the protection of a loved one, you'll be glad to have CCW Safe on your side. CCW Safe provides and pays 100% upfront defense funds for high-quality attorneys, expert witnesses, and the investigators you need following a critical incident with no reimbursement. And they do it all for one flat yearly fee starting at $179 a year. CCW Safe has permit and non-permit plans to protect California residents in this state and while traveling across the country. So check out their new ultimate plan with no caps on criminal and civil defense, $1 million for bond coverage, a dedicated $1 million for civil liability, and many other benefits. You defend your life. CCW Safe will defend your freedom and financial future. In California, CCW Safe has got you covered. So join now at ccwsafe.com. AM 590, the answer. This portion of the firing line is brought to you by Vortex Optics. Vortex, the force of optics. Bonham, what is best in life? To crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentation of your women. That is good. That is good. All right, all right. Uh, you know, I love me some Phil Naming Boy and his commercial breaks. Uh, Stan Campbell here, CCW Safe, um, guest hosting here with uh, Don West from CCW Safe National Trial Council. And we're discussing, you know, things to do and, and issues and challenges that you might have when involved in a self-defense incident. And right now we're still on the, the subject of of um, talking to the police. So, Don, go ahead and continue your, your thought on that. Great. Thanks, Stan. As you touched on, the first contact is likely to be 911. And that's when you identify yourself, you tell them that you were attacked, you had to uh, defend yourself, you request uh, medical as well as uh, police to respond. Uh, you, you put the gun away, assuming, of course, you, there's no danger, so that when the police roll up on the scene, they don't perceive you in any way as a threat. And the next law enforcement uh, Contact will be the responding officers that you talked about. They get the 911 call that are probably close by, and they go over there and, and sort of surveil the, the situation. They begin to talk to some witnesses, and no doubt they will want to talk with you. Uh, same idea. You confirm that you were the victim of the attack, that you had to defend yourself, and that you cooperate by providing important, necessary information that helps get them oriented, uh, preserve evidence if there's a witness or if you saw uh, some evidence uh, somewhere that wasn't readily apparent, maybe where there was blood, they might want to photograph, that sort of thing, if you have the presence of mind to do it. Your demeanor is important, much more important, I think, at that point than the actual uh, additional information that you are no doubt chopping at the bit to provide. Mm -hmm. So the suggestion that I have is, and it's always harder than it sounds, the, the suggestion is that you communicate to the officers that you are willing to cooperate, that you were attacked, that, but, but you want to have the opportunity to consult with legal counsel before you provide a formal recorded or, or written statement. And there's a couple of good reasons for that, some that are obvious, that you're not really ready to do that. Uh, you certainly don't want to say things that ultimately hurt your case, not mm -hmm. because you intend to lie, 
but because you've just been through an incredibly traumatic uh, event where you may have taken someone else's life, you may have feared your own, well, you certainly would have feared that your own life was going to be taken or that you would be seriously injured. So you're in no condition to get things right when you're explaining what happened. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and just to piggyback that thought real quick, you know, from an officer's perspective, you know, that's really right now from a responding officer's perspective, not the investigator. It's really what, what we want to know, because we're we're arriving. Someone's called 911. There's a dead body that now that I have the call, I'm accountable for what happens with this body. So I have to take over the scene. I got to secure the scene, get it prepped. I got I have to, you know find as many witnesses as I can, you know, so, so that they can talk to the investigator, find the person that that's involved or, or get everyone medical attention, you know, depending on the situation. So, you know, officers to this, the ones that are first responding, nothing against you, but they're going to try to get as much information out of you as, as they can. So this is kind of where, where Don pulls into the legal side of it. Go ahead, Don. Yeah. It's important, as, you, as we've talked about, to provide that information that helps orient people. But the concern about giving a lengthy, detailed interview at that point is that you are already out of your depth. Uh, I'm assuming now that you intend to tell the truth, that you would do everything possible to explain things logically in a proper sequence with the right emphasis, etc., but you're just in no shape to do that emotionally. And you probably don't know how to do that. Uh, even though law enforcement may be, may appear sympathetic, they may in fact be sympathetic. Uh, they do have a job to investigate. And that means challenging you. It means collecting evidence that may contradict what you're saying. It may be um, they have the legal right to lie. To mm-hmm. you to see what kind of response you give and um, what you say and how you say it will be with you for the rest of the case. Oh, if you are lucky enough and there's enough corroborating evidence that you don't get arrested, that's great. But chances are you will get arrested no matter how mm-hmm. truthful you are. And maybe even if the police officers completely believe you, there are lots of jurisdictions where if somebody dies at the hands of somebody else, uh, especially with a gun, uh, you're going to go to jail. So, yeah, and, and that's not really something that people should fear being arrested for a, on a self-defense case. You should be more feel fearful of a conviction. And that's kind of what you're trying to protect from, you know, and that's the importance of not giving, you know, a detailed, um, you know, description of the story or, or, or your account of the story, because, your memory is playing tricks on you at that time. You've just been through something traumatic and, and adrenaline has just flushed the system, cortisol and all the, the hormones and chemicals associated with, with traumatic situations has just flooded you. And you're not going to remember everything just as you could in that moment as much as you will maybe 24 and 48 hours later, correct, Don? Yes, there's, that's been clearly established. Uh, in addition to that, uh, sort of the physiological stuff that's going on, I think people have a tendency just to want to talk too much to try to convince the person that's asking them the questions uh, <clears throat> that they're innocent. And they wind up saying too, too much because they haven't thought it through. They, yeah. 
wind up saying things they think will be helpful that as a matter of law may in fact undermine them. And they forget to say important things that if they had a moment to reflect, they might include. So if you're sitting there talking to an officer at the scene and you say something like, well, it was, it was really more of an accident than anything else, mm-hmm. you have just killed your self-defense case. That's right. So you think you're trying to help yourself, but uh, I can tell you as a practicing criminal defense lawyer that the hardest thing to overcome in a good self-defense case are stupid things that the client said to the police right off the bat. That's right. And then don't forget, you know, this is the day and age of the body cam. So know that, you know, you're, you're most likely being recorded either with, you know, from the officers being in front of you with a chest cam or with a car cam, or when, when you actually sit in the back of a police car, you know, if they do allow you to have your phone, don't do anything stupid, like get on the phone and, and start telling the story because it's going to be recorded. Cause you know, in the back of a police car, you know, um, I mean, your, your privacy, I mean, there's no expectation of privacy there. So they, they can record you and use that against you. Yeah. And as I said before, you are out of your depth immediately at that point, because you have just then transitioned from that first fight where you had to save your life and you did to that next one when you become immersed in the criminal justice system. And every lawyer that I know would say the first thing they do after doing the things that we talked about is say that I don't want to be interviewed further without benefit of counsel. Now, and once you get the lawyer and talk with the lawyer and the lawyer may know the police, they may know uh, the prosecutor that gets assigned to the case. They will be maybe even be able to get some of the reports. You can sit there, have, private confidential conversations and decide whether you want to engage in a formal recorded interview after the fact. Uh, I've, it's some people consider it risky and they would almost never do it. On the other hand, I know of other cases where the decision was made in fact to go forward and answer those questions in a, in a calm setting to have the benefit of counsel to help guide the conversation uh, with the, a reasonable uh, belief that at the end of that process, there won't be charges filed or the charges will be dismissed. And in fact, that has happened. That's not the advice to always do that, but give yourself the option to do that and get the benefit, uh, you know, of someone that knows the system and knows the, the players and frankly, you know, is as skilled in his or her profession as you hope your doctor is when you've got something. And then, you know, and people don't understand, like, you know, you and I, we, we sit on a claims committee together when we when we uh, talk about, you know, claims, you know, whether or not to push forward uh, with a claim that comes before us. But also when I think about, you know, the stuff that comes up that, you know, sometimes the, the person that pulls the trigger is his own worst enemy. And that person has no business on the stand because they're, they're going to be detrimental to the case as well. So all that stuff comes down to strategy, right, Don? It does. Uh, you know, as you say, you can't be compelled to testify. And sometimes that's a really good thing, not because the person is going to lie, but because they're simply terrible witnesses. I'm also familiar with successful self-defense cases mm-hmm. where the accused did not testify. 
Yeah. And sometimes because there are other corroborating witnesses, but mostly, frankly, I think it's because there was forensic evidence that corroborated the initial uh, explanation. I was attacked. I had to defend myself and that the science backed it up. Yes. And um, uh, that, that's a strategy decision that you make with your lawyer, sometimes even uh, in the middle of the trial. That, that's a decision when you evaluate where you are, what's happened, and whether you think your best chances of uh, of acquittal uh, is testifying or not. That's awesome. Well, Don, I, I really appreciate your time today, uh, and I know Phil does as well. Um, you know, we, we really enjoy, you know, trying to inform his audience and, and give them, you know, some better sense of what happens after they pull the trigger and sometimes before that that, that can help their case or hurt their case. So thanks again for being here, Don. And My I pleasure. You, Thank sir. you. And uh, you guys um, have a great weekend and look forward to seeing Phil back again. And hopefully I'll be able to fly out to California and be in person soon. Uh, but be safe out there. I'm Stan Campbell from CCW Safe and this is Fire and Line Radio Show. Shoot, Felipe. Shoot. <laughs> When you have to shoot, shoot, don't talk. The Firing Line Radio Show has been brought to you by Bullseye Sports in Riverside, CCW Safe, Cutting Edge Bullets, Vortex Optics, Vortex, the force of optics, and by Philip Naiman and Cornerstone Christian Wealth Management. AM 590, the answer.